This is the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan-Nathan and Peter Gowers. Thanks to Ward Keller, the Territory Law Firm. Hello there. Welcome to wherever you're listening to us today. This is Peter Gowers on the Territory Story Podcast. Joining me, my co-host, Leon Logan-Nathan. Hello there, my friend. How are you, mate? I'm good. How are you? Good, good, good. Looking forward to this conversation. Me too. Given that it's a weekend, this, of course, is the Weekends with Walshy episode for this week. Hello, Chris Walsh from the NT Independent. Hey, guys. How are you? Good. How are you? Yeah, I'm uh, getting my head back on straight here. It's a crazy afternoon in the newsroom. So You've been out fighting now. crime today, have you? <laughs> 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 reporting on it anyway. Um, yeah, crazy days. <laughs> Excellent. Well, let, let's not muck around and waste time. Um, the borders, the COVID-19, the what I like to call the sorry, not sorry, open, not open borders. Uh, what What's going on with, uh, with everything in relation to COVID-19, Chris? Yeah, well, look, today, Thursday, mad kind of scramble uh, from what we've heard at the airport with people, uh, uh, with the flights all full coming in from New South Wales, of course, Michael Gunner this week. <laughs> saying um yeah with regular it's just kind of crazy because here he was he comes he, he comes out on was it monday or tuesday and he says yeah well it was natasha piles he sends natasha piles out on tuesday and this is in the mid of you know queensland and south australia have changed changed their whole border opening policies because of the the outbreak in uh in sydney and Natasha files comes out and says yes we're we're aware of it we're closely watching it and we're going to sleep on it before (laughs) (laughs) sleep at the wheel yeah Yeah. like but she said that she said you know we're gonna think about it tomorrow overnight and maybe tomorrow we'll come out with an announcement and so i don't know what kind of message that sends to people i mean there's a lot of people who are very anxious here in the territory and we've heard from them um and and they're worried about what's going to happen when when the borders open and these people come in and meanwhile at the same time You've got people, I mean, look, Victoria's the real hotspot, right? And that's the issue. But um, New South Wales, definitely some concern around Sydney. So the next morning they came out and said, oh, yeah, okay. So Gunner comes out and says, yeah, you know, we've slept on it now. We thought about it. And we're going to declare all of Sydney a hotspot. And those people coming in will have to go into, into supervised quarantine as of Friday, which is just a completely arbitrary date, uh, an arbitrary date that he said a month ago. Uh, before we knew anything that was going on and the date that, you know, he said he would set and fair enough on that. And, and, you know, he was under a lot of pressure to open the borders because things were looking good, not just in the territory, but across the country. Um, so nobody told him he had to stick to it when things change, things change. You got to be pragmatic <laughs> in these decisions. But, you know, the, it was just the idea that the, this whole, like, yeah, we'll think about it for a while. And meanwhile, everybody's probably scrambling thinking, well, you know, I better get up to, to, to Darwin as quick as I can, because if they got in, if they get in here before Friday, um, well, and then he said, I mean, there was the thing before, and I don't know when that started. So if that was Tuesday night and somebody came in, I think that they would have had to, they would have gone into self-quarantine and as of Friday and then be released. And then he said as of Wednesday, though I'm not sure when that exactly starts, it was unclear that anybody coming in from New South Wales or Victoria Although they won't be sent to supervised quarantine, they will be sent to self-quarantine and they'll have to do the full 14 days and not uh, be released on Friday. So you've got people who've come in from other places now, like let's say Adelaide, 
um, who've had to do 14 days self-quarantine. And they could have come in as, let's say they got in on Wednesday. By Friday, they're allowed out, right? They only had to do two days of it. But because of the, the hotspot areas of Victoria and Sydney, those people... But for a while there, that wasn't the rule. And now he's just kind of changed it this week, saying that those people coming before the forced quarantine on the 17th, they will still have to fill out the 14 days. But I'm not sure. I'm still not clear if that's in, in mandatory supervised quarantine or still in self-quarantine. Still a lot of unknowns. and um, I'm confused. Yeah. And I think that that a lot of people are, and a lot of people are very anxious. And then you've got reports on... Um, uh, you, you know, training going on now for outbreaks in remote communities, uh, more testing clinics being set up now. Of course, Terry Mills came out this week uh, criticizing the Gunner government for not doing enough testing. Uh, Hugh Heggie came out, the chief health officer, and he said uh, there's a reason for that, and it's because we had to be uh, careful, you know, with the resources that we have because did they have enough testing kits? Did they have enough other... Uh, items that they needed and 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 they seem to have been just kind of holding on to things here and anyway it was it's confusing that and now we're just in this thing and it, and it ha and gunner hasn't really explained to everybody well enough exactly what the plan is i mean the plan is to let people in uh you'll quarantine uh the people from victoria and sydney but you know at what cost will people it's just, it's just everybody's unsure because it, it definitely seems like he's saying we're going to, we're going to know. And he said that, look, there are going to be cases of, of, of coronavirus here now, diagnosed, confirmed cases. And I think that a lot of people who've been used to the, to the sanctity of the Northern Territory, you know, being in its own little bubble with having no real cases and no community transmission, a lot of people now are fearing that there will be community transmission and they're basically being told that to prepare for it, that, that that, that mm. is the likely out, outcome of this. So how this will all shake down, I don't know, but uh, definitely understand people being nervous and anxious about it. But yeah, I mean, what can you do? This is what's going to happen. Hey, the bit that I don't get is um, when, when it was biting the whole country and all the borders were closed and you could get into the NT, but you had to go to um, uh, quarantine in, in one of the government-approved hotels. Yeah. Um, which, which we'll talk about a link to that later on. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, ironically enough. But um, now it has to be housed at Howard Springs at the cost of $3,000. I think it's still 2500 I think it's still the same price. Right, okay. The same price as the hotel, why, yeah. Why Howard Springs now? Yeah, that's a good question. That's a good question. I don't know yeah. the answer to that. I know, yeah, we had the hotels... They had the facility there. I mean, the question should have been, like, why the hotels at all anyway? Yeah. I guess, you know, maybe they're afraid of something like what, what happened in Melbourne that we saw. Um, <laughs> well, you know, unless they're hiring union security guys, they sure well, are. <laughs> yeah, but who knows? You know, in the hotels, though, I remember hearing stories when, when that was going on. There were busloads of people being sent to the hotels that they yeah, were being true. watched by security guards. They were being true. watched by security guards, and they were not doing their job, and people were coming and going, and doing whatever. So I guess, you know, that's to reassure people a little bit more that there'll be more observation of them and they'll be under kind of stricter quarantine in a compound. Well, the other problem was that some people were doing their job, but their job uh, was uh, the, the, the Premier in, in Victoria came out a few days ago and he simply said, now, people using sex workers, 
stop doing that. Stop doing that. So, <laughs> good luck with that. Yeah, well, no, we haven't we haven't spoken to any of them up here. <laughs> what to expect? <laughs> yeah, that's a weird angle on it. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, right. Uh, next story, Chris. Colleen Gwynn. My goodness, what is going on there? Yeah, this is just a late Thursday thing. So we're doing this. We're talking Thursday night and, you know, kind of mid-afternoon, late afternoon here today. We had to confirm that uh, that she has been charged uh, with a single count of abuse of office. Uh, Colleen Gwynn, uh, well-known as being the Children's Commissioner and also well-known for being the lead investigator on the Peter, Peter Falconio case, you know, this uh, Bradley Murdoch sent to jail for his murder. Um, and interesting on that, that's just like a big thing over in, uh, in England now, a lot of documentaries, mm-hmm. I guess a few documentaries of examining that case a bit further. Um, from, I don't think it's related to these charges. Um, what do they call it's, it? Uh, there, was some, there was a phrase that came out the other day about what man was it? It was uh, was it Jelly Man? Jelly Man. <laughs> Jelly. Jelly Man. Yeah. Yeah, I didn't get that. It was the he was it somebody the truck driver who picked up Joanne Lee's said that she, he saw some floppy kind of body that was looked like it was made of jelly being tied up or something, wrapped up, and now he thinks it could be Peter Falconio, but. Yeah, I don't know. That's mm-hmm. jelly man. I don't know. Um, but but, but what was interesting about that story was that it was apparently two people trying to put jelly man in the car. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, so there's like the yeah, and there's a lot going on. And then you had her father-in-law join as his father-in-law come out and said that he didn't think that Bradley Murdoch did it, mm. even though he did years ago. Um, I don't know. You know, that's all like quite sensational um, British tabloid stuff. On a, I think whenever there's, uh, whenever there's not a full stop to these types of things, um, yeah. the, the conspiracy theorists uh, are all over it because we don't really know. And unfortunately, uh, Miss Lee's at the time um, was not an overly likeable person, not, not her fault at all. It was just mm. for whatever reason, um, they didn't like her manner or... You know, the way she reacted to interviews or whatever. Yeah, like and, Wendy and Chamberlain. Huh? Exactly. Yeah, and it just, yeah. yeah, I mean, I remember, um, uh, this is random, but I was in the Woolworths uh, supermarket in Darwin City when she was in the middle of this case and supposedly meant to be under, you know, strict security and the whole bit and she was just walking around. And I just <laughs> remember I sort of confronting her in the aisle thinking, oh, God, she looks familiar. Oh, that's that bird. And I just thought. She just looked so beaten by the whole thing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. So anyway, she was, yeah. Getting back to Colleen Gwynn. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, so yeah, the lead investigator on that case, of course, was Colleen Gwynn this many years ago. Uh, in 2015, June 2015, she was appointed children's commissioner. Um, uh, and look, that's a, that's a difficult role to manage for anybody. Uh, a lot of, a lot of people had, had respect for her, I guess, in that position. There's a lot of journalists who thought that she was doing a really good job. I had heard, uh, questions about, uh, regarding, you know, questionable hiring practices in the office under her that I'd sent questions to her about in 2018. Um, I felt some pressure from ABC at that time to kind of not pursue the matter. And also Colleen Gwynn herself had called and was 
a little angry with me about it. Um, but I did pursue it as far as I could. And I got to a, a point where there was just not enough to really come out with, but there were certainly issues there and serious allegations that people in public service had brought up with me. And that, that, that my questions then kind of changed something um, in terms of, of who was hired or maybe who wasn't at that point. And um, yeah, from what I'm hearing today that, that, you know, it could be related to that. There's also some other issues going around, but look, it's, it's just truly remarkable that the children's commissioner would be, would be charged by police with abuse of office. It's, it's, and for this to happen in the way that they did it too, I mean, we know that the NT police are notorious for, for withholding details and uh, crucial information to the public. In this case, they put out a statement saying, oh, yeah, a 54 year old woman was charged with abuse of office after uh, an investigation by the special references unit, but no mention of who it was, right? The journalists had to go, we had to go, I had to, I was making calls trying to figure out exactly who it was. Um, that's something that's so serious, I would think that, you know, we just saw form with that with the chief minister a couple of weeks ago with Kezia Purek and the ICAC investigation finding that um, that she had engaged in corrupt conduct. And he comes out and, and does a press conference the day before the report's even released and says, you know, here's what's got to happen and, and trying to take charge. Now, they've had this where now, you know, the integrity of the office of the children's commissioner is online. I mean, this is a, a, the commissioner being charged with abuse of office. And, you know, she's indicated, I guess, through a source or a, a spokesperson that that she's going to fight the charge. Um, at the same time, I don't think she can really stay in that position anymore um, while this is going on. And yet you had complete silence from the government today. Uh, Natasha Files, I believe, would be the minister responsible for that, the attorney general. Um yeah, and they didn't come out anywhere, but they were hiding out today for other things too, um, which I think we'll get to a little, a little later on. But yeah, I just, I find that weird. Um, also, what's really weird about this is the special references unit um, and the police making specific reference to special references unit during the investigation. Now, that was a unit that was set up by the NT police during uh, the, when John McRoberts, the police, former police commissioner, was charged. Um, and we had nobody who could investigate him. And this went back and forth, and there were so many conflicts of interest. But anyway, the police set up this. And at the time, I recall, they were saying that the special references unit would, was set up to investigate sensitive political issues. So it was really set up to investigate uh, public servants, uh, politicians, and police if they were involved in, in it all. But it's not really the specific internal investigation stuff. It's more for public servants and politicians. But my, my, my knowledge of that was that that was kind of wrapped up when the ICAC took over and started because that's, of course, in the ICAC's remit. So here we have something, Special References Unit investigation. Uh, that tells me that it's a, it's a longer-term investigation that may have started a while ago and it's taken a while to get to this point now where the charge has, has finally been laid. The other part that I... I found really disturbing. And I'm just going to say that is, and from, from legal people that I spoke to with today is that you're looking at from the time the charge is laid to when you're appearing in court, three weeks is about an average. Mm -hmm. This one, the charge was laid today. Um, she's not going to appear in court until August 27th. And that's five days after the election. Wow. <laughs> And it's just, it's too far. And 
the other thing here, and this is why, and then the more you look at it, and, and I talked to some people, why in May? So I mentioned that, that she was appointed Children's Commissioner in June 2015. In May of 2020, this year, she had her contract renewed for another five years. Mm-hmm. Now, the question that's been posed with sources that I talk to, some legal people and some political people, public servants as well, um, why would the Gunner government renew her contract if they were aware that she was under investigation and the charges were looming? Mm-hmm. And that that kind of leads into a whole, you know, you could speculate for a lot of other things, and I don't want to get into too much of it here now that we can't prove. And, um, you know, I'm all about getting the facts together and at least having enough hard, on, hard to go on. Um, but to go, to, to, to delay this for that long, for them to, to appoint her, if they knew, and there would have been people, there would have been people who would have been very much aware that she was under investigation at that time for her to get appointed and then for them now to not, to, to, to put it back to August 27th. I don't know if they honestly thought that they could keep it under wraps until August 27th and that we wouldn't, but there's so many questions for, for Gunner, for the Gunner government, for Michael Gunner and Natasha Files to answer over this. And they're not doing it. Expect them to maybe sleep on it again tonight and come out tomorrow. Mm. <laughs> it seems to be their way of doing things these days. I don't know, but yeah, it doesn't, doesn't smell right to me. And uh, I guess we'll, we'll watch it and see where it goes. Mm. But there's got to be answers before the election. I mean, you can't, you can't hide something until after an election. You better come out and start saying what, what at least the charge is now, what she's accused of. She says she's going to fight it. Fair enough. That's her, her right. And, um, but let's get it out there and let's not, with the suspicion, with clouds of suspicion, or what could it be? What could it be? I mean, that doesn't help anybody, and it certainly doesn't help a really troubled position there. I mean, and then just in general, I mean, the children's commissioner—you know—all the stuff that they have to deal with. I mean, that's a that's a really difficult role, and they've done nothing to to alleviate that, or make things easier when there's now charges going, and they're not even explaining to anybody what what the hell is going on, what the charges stem from. So, I'm hoping they come out and at least explain a little more to the public soon. Mm. I just can't move on to the next topic without making this sound. Dun dun. <laughs> I don't have a sound effect with me, but if I did, that would be the CSI Special References Unit intro. <laughs> <laughs> I love the name. <laughs> SRU. Yeah, that's what somebody was saying today. Oh, you know, the SRU and the SRU. I thought they were done. Oh, CSRU. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, moving along. So, Chris, uh, the majority of the Gunner government's fast-track job-creating projects are facing delays. Yeah, so this morning, uh, I'm on my way to work and I'm hearing on the radio, oh, you know, the, the, the Gunner government has announced upgrades to Litchfield National Park. Uh, campground's going to be tremendous. They're adding new spots. Like, huh, okay, that sounds like an election thing. Um, but then I remembered where I'd heard about Litchfield before. Now, Back in February, uh, February 2019, so a year and a half ago, uh, Michael Gunner came out in a, in a press conference and he said, look, we fast-tracked five job-creating projects, infrastructure projects that we're going to get off the ground. And they were uh, the Litchfield National Park. Um, and he said, you know, we'll, we'll do the upgrades to the campground there. We're going to build a new Palmerston Fire Station. We're going to build a, a new Mandora Jetty because it needed a whole new one now. It's been you know, taking such a beating over there's Kilgariff stage two. That was a uh, property development down in Alice and, uh, was the other ones at Coley primary school. So five projects, fast track, 
he said, uh, you know, creating local jobs is our number one priority. Um, industry has been asking us to create certainty for their construction workforces and enable businesses to plan ahead. And we're delivering on that. Now, what we've done is we've gone in and we've looked at exactly where all these projects are. So we examined tenders, we examined core logic data, we examined a whole bunch of different documents relating to it. And what we found were that three of the five, and it's interesting because it was just, I think, earlier this week or late last week that we finally had something and we just, you know, been preoccupied with some other stories. But then today they came out and discussed the Litchfield National Park upgrades. And we thought, well, yeah, here's, here's the time to, to point out that you got three other really serious major projects that you've pledged to fast track that haven't gone anywhere. Um, and the Palmerston Fire Station, I mean, that was expected to deliver 180 jobs. It was, it was scheduled to begin in 2019, so last year, and done by June next year. Right now, it's still it's gone back to the planning phase. Uh, the tender to design it, I guess, was released last year, but it, it hasn't even been awarded. That was in October. Uh, the Jetty, Mandora Jetty, same thing, 80 jobs promised. Uh, the tender for design was awarded in June last year, uh, but it's actually been now the whole project completely removed from the future tenders page and placed back in the project's preparation stage. The Kilgara Fellow Springs uh, Stage 2 development of uh, property it was supposed to be fast-tracked to ensure a continuous supply of affordable land in the Alice Springs market. Well... No, that's still in the planning phase now. The records, government records that we access show uh, one tender for services survey and uh, another one for architect consultancy was awarded just this past April. But for the real estate service yet to be awarded and it's hard to tell exactly where that is, but it's not happening anytime soon. So to be fair to them, they've got the $17.5 million Litchfield campground upgrades, which was announced today, and the $29 million primary school at Sokoli underway. But you got to think, you know, you're going to make these promises 18 months ago. And I think that they just think nobody's going to pay attention, you know, in the, in the release today. And I believe that's all it was, too. Another one that was just a release, press release, instead of a press conference about it, because they're afraid they'll get questions on it. But no mention of how it was one of five projects that was fast-tracked last year because even then i mean how fast is this moving up 18 months later you're just getting it out the door now yeah um i think this is the kind of stuff that the people need to be paying attention to like and, and this is the stuff we're doing for people so they can just read the story we're paying attention to the promises that were made and we're, we're checking it out and seeing if they follow follow through on it in this case three of five they get the big fail for and uh, two of them I guess a moderate pass, but still 18 months late. Because this is what happens all the time. I mean, whenever I attend these budget lockups, you know, I just, I just hear that they seem to re-announce the same expenditure, the same, you know, and recycle money that hasn't been spent previously. Why does it take so long for the money to get out the door? There's so many different reasons that I've heard for that or excuses for that. Um, and, and the government just, they continue to deny it and they won't give us a straight answer. But what I think is that sometimes things get reprioritized and they forget about that thing and they're like, oh, something else has come on. I mean, they really should, they should have more focus than on just the, you know, one or two projects. And we're going to do, if you're going to announce five projects and follow all five, but whether that's in, you know, in the departments, Dipple's been really bad at that. Dipple, I mean, it's just been terrible at the at meeting its targets and getting the stuff out the door 
And this is kind of, but this is a whole political thing, right? Is that you get into the cycle where now, before the election, they could start rolling out things that, geez, we forgot about from three years ago that they announced and say, oh, yeah, we're doing this now. This is a special new thing. And just before the election, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, whether they can get that out the door. But they seem to, for their own, you know, pet projects, they seem to be able to roll those out the door. Or if they're doing it for a developer, maybe a developer friend of theirs is going to pull it up. Well, on to the next story. Was I being too ominous there, guys? I'm like, tee it up for us. <laughs> yeah. The takeover of Kakadu National Park, that seems to be a uh, little bit of a hot potato. What, what's going on there? Because I, initially I thought uh, that that people weren't happy with the way the Commonwealth was managing the park. Yeah. But, uh, was that, is that true? Uh, yeah, yes and no, right? It's, um, yeah, it was a little, little blurry there. And I guess what's really kind of come out today is that, um, uh, I don't know exactly how to tell you. So the Kakadu board is, uh, board of management is made up of indigenous owners, traditional owners out there. So it's called the Kakadu board of management. And then you've got uh, some traditional owners on that board. And then you've got some federal government parts, Australia people on that board. And what seems to have happened in, in this case is that there's been disagreements between the traditional owners on the board and the, the federal, who, who would be federal government members on the board um, from national parks, uh, Parks Australia. So, uh, yeah, so there's been some fighting there. Um, it's, it's, it's been to the point, I guess, where, you know, the traditional owners are saying that the Parks Australia people who are on that board um, have not handled things properly, haven't listened to them. I think part of the, the whole big issue here was what happened with COVID-19 of being shut down and, and not having clear communications for traditional owners of when it would get up and moving again. Uh, now, in the middle of that, where you have this kind of this fight going on, you've got the federal government, you've got sorry, the NT government deciding that they want to get involved somehow instead of letting this be an issue that, that you know, Michael Gunner comes out and says in the middle of everything else going on, yeah, uh, we'll take control of, uh, of Kakadu and uh, we'd be happy to do that. We'll take it over from the federal government. Now, I, I don't know why he's saying that. I, you know, it, is, it does sound like a political thing to, you know, yes, let's attack Canberra again. It's all the federal government's fault. Uh, of course, the federal minister, I think it was Susan Lee, was on um, uh, Mix 104 here last week, and she was asked that, well, what do you think of Michael Gunner saying he wants to take it over? And she just said, uh, no. it's probably the best answer i mean you you've got these guys having a little hard time getting infrastructure projects out the door as we were just talking about it now or or a budget out yeah exactly (laughs) and now he wants to wear himself even thinner and and take over management of kagadu national park like that's just really weird and uh, i think marion scrimjaw today on radio really put that into focus for michael gunner uh and saying look Nobody, the traditional owners, don't want the anti-government coming in. Michael Gunner has not even consulted with anybody, right, um, about what the anti-government would do, what his pledges would do. She was also saying that, look, you, you look at the investment, yeah, Litchfield's getting some money, some other parts are getting money, but there's a lot of parts in the Northern Territory and a lot of them that are underfunded right now. 
Mm. But here's a, a you know political uh, bun fight going on, and Michael Gunner steps into it because he wants to. I mean that is. I mean that's just total crass politics to get in at some point and make it all about himself when he's got no intention of doing it. I mean, he just, you can't, the anti-government wouldn't even be able to really manage that effectively at this point. So why even, why even enter and why not try and be a conciliator and get both sides back on the table and talking again, instead of saying, well, I'll just take it over. Why don't I do that? Uh, yeah. no, I don't know. No leadership in my mind, but uh, anyway, he wants to uh, throw some dung at, Canberra, I guess, but it really kind of backfired on him on that one. I really thought her response was great. Like, man, no, no, not going to happen. You thought about it? <laughs> yeah, I thought about it right here for two seconds. It just goes. It just goes to give. It gives you a really clear indication of the contempt with which the federal government, you know, has of the Northern Territory government. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And look, you know, you could say for decades that that's been a big thing, right? Uh, and anti-politicians like taking shots at Canberra and stuff. And, mm -hmm. but, and Canberra not, not really taking them too seriously. But here, yeah, you can see. I mean, when Scott Morrison came out and said it was the worst government he's ever seen. <laughs> uh, like it was, yeah, like it was bad. And, um, yeah. And, yeah, it's arguing. I don't know. Uh, you want to see them kind of work together because... You got to get things done. But that was during, too, that was during, before the federal election. I don't, I think Michael Gunner put all of his eggs in Bill Shorten's basket, right? Like he was going really hard on, on Morrison over the, the uh, indigenous housing money and Nigel Scullion, which didn't make sense. Like he was really playing politics with that. And he assumed that uh, Shorten was going to win and would give him the money that he needed. And then when Shorten didn't win, <laughs> uh, Gunner went crawling back. And to their credit, you know, uh, Morrison I came through with some funding there, but that was, yeah, that was stupid politics. And this is stupid politics. And don't, don't make comments like that. You're going to take over a park without talking to traditional owners first, because that's what he was called out for doing today by Marin Scrimjaw. And I, he just looked like a fool. Mm. Well, continuing on the uh, political theme and uh, political donations, uh, namely <laughs> the CLP this time, it's something we seem to always be talking about political donations. Well, yeah. And, you know, usually you get, you get looking at that. So I've been following them here for six years, political donations when they come out every year. And we usually get a good story about it. And people want to know who's donated to which party and if there were any benefits exchanged. You know, they always make that connection. Uh, and people are probably right to make that connection. So for six years, it would take a long time to go through those lists and find out, okay, what does, you know, ABA... Uh, proprietary limited who owns that who's connected to that right and so this time this year just now it was a lot easier uh and mainly because there weren't as many donors nowhere near as many donors and i've never seen a country liberal party uh financial return with so few businesses business donations on it um this is a, a, a party that, that, that ran the Northern Territory that called itself the, you know, the, 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 what was it, the governing, the natural governing, the natural ruling party of the Northern Territory, uh, funded for years on business, big and small, uh, who, who would donate regularly. Um, just completely, completely gutted from that. And, the, and the, I mean, you only had three businesses. Uh, who donated to the country liberal party in the last financial year. Um, 
and in the lead up to an election, that's just, that's almost unheard of. Like, that's crazy. Like most of their donations were from their own candidates, people that were running aside from, from, wow. from three donations. So with three donations, and then I think Charlie Rendezzo kicked in some money too, which would be personal and not a, a business donation. So yeah, for the CLP to uh, that kind of gives you an indication, I think, of of who's betting on who to win the election, at least who business is betting on, and it's and it's not the CLP. Labor, meanwhile, I mean, we're still short in what they typically raise, uh, but they far and away uh, uh, led um, with all donors. Look, it was something like I think. Uh, Territory Alliance had uh, about 156,000, um, slightly better than CLP's 131,000, but you had Labor come in uh, with massive like national donations and stuff, uh, and they, were, they raked in $438,000. Uh, and that was kind of all over the place. You had um, your typical union donations, which were big. You had uh, the betting, betting people, betting companies, putting in money and of course developers developers supporting labor far more than the country liberal party this time, which wow. yeah, it's not, it's not Unusual. a typical thing. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, it looks like the bets are that, um, at least from business and developers that it'll be labor who wins the election based on that. I think there's also a, um, a parallel that you can draw with that. When, when we spoke to Robin Lamley, um, not that long ago, she she came out with a statement that both Leon and I loved uh, for its honesty, and that is that it's highly unlikely that any one party is going to have enough seats to uh, declare themselves the winner of this upcoming election. So if you're the CLP currently holding two seats and Territory Alliance, who I think from memory it's five, correct me if I'm wrong there, uh, no, they got three right now, and then you got two independents still. Okay, and two independents. So, and the the reality is that, um, I'm, yes, I'm speaking, I keep saying this over and over again, but the current government is probably not the most favourable government that's ever existed in, this, in the Northern Territory's history. You don't have to dumb it down, mate. Just say what you feel. <laughs> <laughs> I seem to get in trouble from you every time I do. So the current government's on the nose, which we talk about a lot. So therefore, people don't, people don't know who to give donations to because <laughs> they don't know, they're thinking, who's going to win this bloody thing? And no. Robert Lamley said that the coalition, if one is formed, could be any two parties. It could be Territory Alliance and Labor, Territory Alliance and CLP. I can't see the CLP and Labor getting into bed together, but who well. knows? Well, yeah, I mean, look at the preferences, right? I mean, that was the uh, the story that we had last week was that Lamley was out blasting them for talking about doing preference deals, which they did in the Johnson by-election, CLP preferencing labor. Mm, so well, when we see that. Yeah, look, I, I just want to... First of all, Pete, <laughs> I, I just uh -oh, want to say... I'm going to get in trouble. No, here. you're not going to get in trouble, right? <laughs> it, it, it is not a question of, uh, you know, who's going to win, you know, um, uh, and, and who do we like and that's who we should donate to, right? I hate with a passion political donations. I hate it because to me 
it is a corruption of democracy. Okay, here I go back on the on the soapbox. It, why would a developer donate to a political party? Why? <laughs> well, why? Yeah. You know, why would he or why wouldn't he? No, just, I mean, why would they do it? I mean, there, there is only one reason why a developer. Correct. Yeah, correct. Would, you know, and this is what frustrates the hell out of me. And I hate it. I, I would rather my hard-earned tax dollars go into a bucket of money that wannabe politicians or politicians can access to use to campaign. Right? I would rather all of us collectively as a, a society contribute some of our tax dollars into a slush fund that anybody, doesn't matter what po political um, persuasion you are, you can, you can tap into that if you want to run for office. Because this whole freaking scheme of political donations just corrupts the democratic process. I mean, we aren't anywhere near as bad as the US, thank Christ, right? Mm. But you can look at that as a very good example of what happens when you take it to the extreme. And mm. then you basically have the richest people in society buying the government of the day. And that stinks to me. Uh, and I just look mm. at this stuff and I look at, you know, the people that are on this list, you know, uh, most of them developers. Yeah. And I just think it's wrong. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, it, it, it is. And the, but the hard sell there is to tell, I think that the reforms need to come in almost on a different level. But one, why does it cost so much to run a campaign? It isn't the United States. They're not buying television ads that we'll see, you know, the, 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 the hundred million people will see. There's not millions to be spent here. I think that, that there's a way if you keep it cheap and I, yeah. And you know, you buy your core flutes and God knows people have been complaining about those that went up last <laughs> week. And <they're, laughs> but if, if there's more labor then you know why they, they've got a hundred, yeah. 200,000 yeah. more than the next more, guy. More printing money. Yeah. So, but I, I think too, Leon, I mean, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that the donations corrupt the process. Is there a way to keep it level and to, Keep it. Here, here, here's the other part of this. So, here's the other part of this that really bothers me. And you need to know what's going on in this campaign. Um, and I'm going to write something about this, and I haven't done it yet. But so let's look at this. That that what was it? Labor brought in four hundred and thirty-eight thousand dollars. Territory Alliance one hundred fifty-six thousand. CLPs one hundred thirty-one thousand. Okay, so let's say that that's their campaign war chest here for the election. It's not, a, that's not actually accurate because, well, one, I mean, there'll be other donations come in after this is to June 30th. So after July 1st to election day, and we won't know about those until after the election, which is another issue. But here's why labor has the advantage on this. Um, and I, I'll give you the best example. Uh, and it has nothing to do with the donations. It has to do with a flyer that Lauren Moss put out the other day. And she said, and she's running Casarina, and she said, come to my meet and greet or whatever, fish and chips for everyone. Now, who do you think's paying for those fish and chips? It's not, it's not from donations. It's not the party. The party's not paying for it. It's the electorate allowances. She's paying for that 
Michael Gunner last weekend held a, uh, what did he call it? Movies in the park or something. He played Frozen 2 for the kids. They had 80 people show up. And this is, this is campaigning stuff, right? I mean, this is campaign material. Like he, he's doing this, but that was paid for out of the electorate allowance. Now they have, and, and the, the ICAC commissioner, when he did the, uh, the report in the Keys of he mentioned it briefly at the end that electorate allowances, uh, you know, it's unclear exactly where they're all being spent. Now the incumbent parties have kind of always had this advantage, right? Of, of being able to use an electoral allowance for campaigning. And that's really what's going on here, though they shouldn't be allowed to do that, they are. But made even worse here was that on January 1st, 2018, the NT government uh, brought into effect the re remuneration tribunal decision that, that determined that $15,000, uh, what normally would have been for travel expenses for MLAs, any MLA wanted to do a study tour, they had to report where they were going, what territories were getting as a benefit out of this. Um, they, they, they scrapped that requirement and they re reduced the 10,000 and they put it into, and now this is a year, right? Annually. So they put it in to the electorate allowance. So if you were a politician at that time, you would say, okay, I got 10,000 a year to do this. I, I can go on a trip somewhere in the study tour and God knows some of them have and where they went. We don't know right now. We just don't know. We used to know. They used to have to report where they went. They don't anymore. Others will say, okay, maybe I don't have to go anywhere. Maybe I'll go this year and that year. And then the other years, I'm going to roll that money into my campaign war chest, my personal campaign war chest for when the election's called. So the advantage there to the incumbents and especially labor, who the majority of incumbents, is that they've been collecting this other money that they can use for campaigning, that they can use to buy fish and chips for everybody in, who shows up. 200 people, let's just, we'll pay for it. Hell, that's nothing out of our electorate allowance. It's just like that, you know, you, you use the word slush fund, Leon. That is the worst kind of slush fund because we don't know how much, we don't know. And, you know, yeah, I got into a bit of an argument over with the FOI people over that because I, started, I suggested that I wanted to start to see that. And it's going to be difficult. I'm going to still try. Um, but basically, they don't have to report that publicly, their electorate allowance. It's between them and the ATO. And so what you've seen traditionally for years, too, I'm getting off the subject, but politicians would hire their partners to like work in their electorate office, and they could pay them through the electorate allowance. And they can do really whatever they want with that. And for instance, and we know because Kezia Purick's partner Lisa put that on her LinkedIn page that she worked part-time in, in the electorate office for Kezia, right? And this stuff's gone on for years and MLAs have hired um, their spouses to, to, to clean, to be cleaners at the office or to answer phones or do whatever. Um, but this is the worst kind of slut. And this is stuff that will never show up on any, on any campaign thing. And this is like public money being used against the, the public or being used to bribe the public. I guess, and against the other candidates coming in, we don't have that advantage. And just the way that this government in particular has changed the rules around that and the reporting requirements around that is just, that's really disturbing and troubling. Because, look, I just need to understand that a bit more. I'm, I, I'm, I might have missed it. So this is what an electoral, what is it? Allowance, is it? Electoral yeah, allowance. the electorate allowance. Okay, yeah. and how much is that a year? Oh, it depends, right? It could be a hundred and some thousand. It depends on the different electorate, of course, remote. And remote electorates would, oh, would get more money. Right. Could be, yeah. So it's usually, I don't think, over a hundred thousand though. Um, and what, what labor did was 
the Gunner government brought in this extra money that was for travel, mm -hmm. for MLA travel, and then they've just kind of made it so that there's no requirement to report it. So it really is like a slush fund in there, which, you know, politicians could say, I'm going to use that for a campaign. That's my campaign money. Right. We'll do that and we'll pay for fish and chips for everybody. So it favors yeah, so. it favors people who it favors incumbents then because they've got that that money. Yeah, That's what you're yeah, saying. yeah. And 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 look, I don't know, I've talked to some challengers who were saying this is what really pisses us off is that we can't compete with that. Like, how can I buy fish and chips for everybody and they like yes, I can't yes. do that. But here they are using the public's money to buy them stuff to to curry favor and hope that they vote for them. So, but getting back to these public donations, yeah. Um, at least these donations are listed and at least we know, but I can tell you that <laughs> from stories that I've heard, there's a lot that don't get listed on. Well, there. that's the thing, you know, and that's the yeah. thing. And, and it, you could, I mean, you could seriously drive a truck through that. I mean, you know, you're relying on people's honesty, aren't you? I mean, unless they actually put the money into a bank account, how would you know mm -hmm. if money was just handed over? You don't. And like, for example, let's say this land, some, but he owns a, uh, you know, a pub with TAB there on it and does a bet and it's a big winner. They bet a lot of money on it and it's a big winner, 25,000 bucks. It's all on a ticket, right? And who's to say the politician isn't there and the ticket isn't just slipped to the politician who then goes and claims it or gets someone else to claim it. Like mm -hmm. there are stories that I've heard about so many things and still literally the brown paper bags, which of course is how, you know, alleged parliament house was actually built <laughs> with brown paper bags and stuff. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is an interesting whole thing, right? That ABC Four Corners, Big Bucks Territory uh, is just fantastic in the 90s and some real dodgy stuff that was going on then that's still going on now. But, it wasn't a uh, wedding planner who donated the money, was it? The wedding planner. <laughs> yeah, it was a wedding cake. <laughs> I'll give you the money as long as you build it like a cake. You know who was involved? Well, anyway, that's it's a longer story to get into. But look, this stuff's been going on in the NT for years. And I don't know, maybe you look at who's not on the list sometimes and wonder, hmm, why are they all of a sudden not donating? And that might go always. I'm not, I'm not accusing anybody of anything there. Like, I don't think that I, I know, and I'm sure that the parties follow as best to their ability. Um, yeah, but I, I look, I mean, in terms of, in terms of the developers, I'm not having a go at the developers at all because. Yeah. In my view, the developers are doing what they are probably economically forced to do because every other developer is doing it. So if they don't do yeah. it, you know, they're going to be on the outcome. Yeah. So you know, it's crap. So really yeah. what so I'm saying... goes back and forth, yeah. Exactly. And then, yeah. They've, got to, they've just got to cut it out. They've just got to say, no, no one is, is donating any money to anybody uh, and... The public is going to fund these elections through a process that will have to obviously be. I, I'm sure that I'm sure the, the the Northwest Territories in Canada sorted this out, Pete. You know, we'll have to talk to Jerry Wood exactly. about that. Exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah, talk to Jerry because yeah, I don't know how it goes on up there. The That's more we the keep talking about this stuff, the more I keep thinking about how much sense that makes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you know, but they did. But look, Gunner government when they came in and nobody talks about this report, but it's called the Mansfield report into political donations. Right. And it was such of what I would call, I, I accused the guy there election of duty and then like a column or something <laughs> I wrote because it is just so poorly done. He did it in a week or something. 
the recommendations aren't even real. Right. I mean, it was, it was, it was just, it was not good. And I'm, I'm no disrespect to them, but it was just, it was not as well researched or informed as it should have been. And the recommendations he made uh, were pretty light and it was only to, you know, get some of the changes that we're seeing now in terms of the reporting requirements up to a, a national standard or a, st- or a state standard. And, um, there, there was an opportunity there to start looking at um, banning developers, right? Like in New South Wales, so they ban developers from doing yep. it. And then, and then what happens with that? Though? I mean, does that and then just go into the back alley and the brown paper? I don't know. But there was something there to really have a discussion and it really just fizzled out. And we haven't seen really the reforms that are needed here. And for a guy like Michael Gunner, who, who promised first off to do that report and secondly, again, to do, be open and transparent about everything. That, that really, we should have had a, a, a much broader public conversation about what reforms were needed, and we haven't, and here we are now just with the same old crap that we had. Mm. Yeah. I just pulled it up on the internet. I've got to read it, especially the submissions, because uh, there's quite a few people that put submissions in. Yeah, he interviewed me for it. I, I went in, and I didn't put in a submission, but he called me. Oh, that was about a particular issue. Never mind, you'll read it in there. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was not impressed. I was not impressed with how they did that report. Well, uh, moving on to more openness and transparency. <laughs> uh, it seems Holocaust Group are being given $55 million to build a new youth prison uh, after they uh, first objected to the original uh, chosen spot to be moved. Can you enlighten us on that, Chris? Oh, yes, with pleasure. This is, um, well, not with pleasure. I mean, I'm really disappointed in this, but I mean, this is, to do this, it's such a bad look for the Gunner government and this close to the election, but so something was, there was some pressure on them here. So here's how they announced this today. We'll get into why it was an issue, but they put out a press release at 11.26 a.m. this morning. Now, normally... They love, we were, we were talking earlier about the five big projects they had to create jobs and uh, keep the economy moving. They come out and they celebrate every little thing that they can get. If they're awarding a contract <laughs> to somebody for, <laughs> yeah, you know, building a, a, a skateboard ramp or something, some minister will be there calling the cameras to be there, taking photos. Right. We're keeping people in work. Today, no. This went out. It, it was kind of hidden too. It was the 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 subject of the press release was something like creating 416 jobs. I didn't notice. I didn't see it until later in the afternoon. I think it was so innocuous. It was meant to look so innocuous that they had some new projects, and we had just got the story up about how well other you know three or five major projects were delayed. Uh, looked at it later, and yeah, wow, okay halfway down buried in there is oh and by the way uh helico's group has been awarded 50 the 55 million dollar contract to build the new holtz prison now why that's an issue and why no minister came out is because of how that it's like the arrogance of it all that, that they would be given the contract after how they've handled everything so to take you back to to, to 2015 uh would have been actually would have been 2016. It was right before the last election, uh, right before the CLP went to annihilation. Halicos gets and this is all in public record. Halicos gets gifted the Barama Farm site right in between Darwin and Palmerston, highly sought after. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, 
if developed, uh, some estimates where it'd be worth a billion dollars. And so they get this awarded to them for free. And we don't find out about it until after the election. It was mm-hmm. for free. And this is despite another developer who I've spoken to, I know, had put in a $30 million bid for the same parcel of land. Wow. And so then things change, though. They deteriorate. I've been following it since then. You had then a buyback of land. So the government gives this land, the, 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 let's say it's valued at $30 million. I mean, they never did a proper valuation of it, the Auditor General Fund. But let's say the, the offer was $30 million. It's worth $30 million. They give the, the $30 million parcel of land away for free. Then they say, can we buy back a little small part of that? And we'll give you $5 million for it. And so they agree to that. And then what happens too, and I've, I've FOI'd this and I've gone through everything. So what also happened with the variations in the contract? So when Helicos won it, it was not anywhere near <laughs> what it ultimately ended up being. And so many things were changed. So many variations were done to it that the Auditor General, you know, she had a hard time keeping track of it all. There were major things where it wasn't level playing field. They weren't bidding on the same things, but Helicos got it. So, you had this, and it was just controversy. It was just such a big controversy for so long. How did they get this for free? I mean, what's going on? Uh, the other guy's offering $30 million. The territory's, you know, giving valuable assets away to do things right. Um, then uh, the public accounts committee. So it finally goes to the auditor general's done with it. She finds the valuation wasn't done properly, and she finds that there's some issues, I think, with property, with some, some, some reports being not tabled or not brought forward or, or given to her. Um, and then the public accounts committee steps in. And then what they do is that they hold a public hearing into it. They're, they're, they are told a story by the Department of Infrastructure Planning and Logistics. It doesn't match the story that the Auditor General's been saying about it. Um, they come away from that meeting and they do up a report and they say, we've, you know, we acknowledge that the department withheld property information. From this. And even the public accounts committee, so part of the most serious parliamentary committee, who had asked for information, weren't given it. But they decide, um, you know what, there's no sense pursuing this anymore. Lessons learned. Let's call it a day. We're not sure what those lessons were exactly because we're still not sure what the hell happened with the deal because we haven't looked at it any further. But let's just forget about it. Let's just move on and, you know. <laughs> it was right out of that movie, like Burn After Reading. What have we learned today? Well, we learned not to do it again, so I'm not sure what it is we did. You know, uh, and that, oh and that's, God. and so this kind of thing just kind of blindly ended there, just suddenly ended, and and that was it, and nobody looked into it any further. Now the ICAC has mentioned it in an interview before that he, he may be looking into that. Not sure about that. So anyway, but that was a big controversy. Big controversy. Now they get it and they start building what they call Northcrest. And this is this big residential development. And they get to a point where, well, you know, kind of adjacent to the property is where the Don Dale facility is right now. Mm -hmm. And so in 2018, when the government decides, after taking the recommendations of the Royal Commission into youth detention, which said, don't build the youth detention center. And first you got to close the Dondell because that's just not fit for purpose. And you've got to build a new prison or find a new place to do this. And it can't be at where the adult prison is. So they say, okay, let's build it where the Barama prison is because then they built the new Holtz prison. So they moved the kids into the now unusable, but disused Barama prison. We call it Dondell. 
So they decide, okay, we're going to build a new youth detention center there. And here are the plans for it and everything. Helicos gets upset about this. And they say, no, this is too close to our development, Northcrest. Um, so they lodge a legal objection saying, we don't want prison built here because we're building this nice community. So the government acquiesces, although they said that they didn't. They said, um, you know, we decided to move it just for our own reasons, not because Helicos <laughs> put in a complaint about it. But to think of the arrogance of that, that, that they were given this land for free. Mm. They knew where everything was around it. They were given it for free. And then they, make an, they, they argue and, and, and file a complaint, a legal objection, that they don't want the prison being built there. So fine. So the government moves and then they try and build it a Pinelands and there's big uproar with, um, with the businesses out there and the community people. And, um, and, uh, so it doesn't go ahead. So they back, they backtrack on that because it's just, I mean, it's just an over, it's an onslaught of things. You know, Owen Pike was involved in, in fighting that and a lot of other business owners out there. So the government says, okay, fine. I guess we're going to have to build it out at Holtz where the, uh, where the adult facility is. So that's what they do. So I said, okay, we're going to have to do this. And of course, this is not in keeping with the Royal Commission recommendation not to do it, but they decide to do it there. And now today we find out that Goes Group gets $55 million contract to build that. So not only did they object to it being where it was and where, where it probably should be, and let's keep in mind that there were a lot of people wanted there because it was still close to, you know, that the, the family could take a bus out there. Families can't get out to the Holtz prison. They can't get there for adults, so they yep. sure as hell won't get there for juveniles because there's no public transport to get out there. Mm. So, and, and, you know, the prison's been there for, for years and years. Everybody's used to it there. There's, you know, other facilities, everything. Like, you know, it's probably a pretty decent place all in all. Um, but they, they wouldn't do it because the legal's objected to it. So they move it somewhere else and then they give the contract to them who, you know, they already got in the free land. Um, it's um, kind of hard to digest, isn't it? Really? It, 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 you've got a situation where, I mean, I'm still trying to get over the bit where they were gifted the land, but then they had, uh, they gifted the land to a developer, but then they had to buy it back when they wanted to push it back. Like, that that boggles the mind to start with. <laughs> well, and this is what they would, they've tried to investigate. I've FOI'd this thing. I've written about it for so many years, and it's all there. It doesn't make sense. Nothing makes sense in the whole thing, the, but nobody's doing anything. The problem with all this is, Chris, I know at the moment that Victoria is the, the, the favourite, uh, you know, thing to kick because it's an easy target, but this is one of the problems that the NT faces on an ongoing basis is that, it, unfortunately, because of the crazy headlines people see on the NT news and when they hear about, and it's not just Labor, I mean, we've seen it with, with CLP governments as well, when mm. they hear about the crazy things that get done with deals between mates and deals between businesses and unchecked donations and it it just makes the whole system seem like an utter farce. Yeah, and 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 then that leads to more economic um, disadvantage, if you will. Like that, the economy is not going to improve because what we need and what the Langlois report pointed out was private investment, and we've all known this forever. 
mm. who's going to invest in a you know a banana republic like this that 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 does these things and and look this guy who made the thirty million dollar offer it was part it was a joint venture with a local guy but this guy's out of Sydney and and yeah. he just said yeah screw it like you know why why would I do this and I, he yeah. pursued it for a while to get an answer from them and he, he never got an answer about why him offering thirty million dollars and actually saying that I won't take any money for infrastructure is somehow a better deal than Helico saying, we want the land for free and you should give us something for infrastructure too. Yeah, and move that <laughs> so damn you, prison. Yeah, and, and so, uh, yeah, and the cost associated with that. Um, yeah, and it, it, just, it just continually hurts private investment and this has been going on for years and they wonder why we can't get it and it's stuff like this and it's all kinds of just crap that happens here. Only in the NT, you know, we had a lawyer, I had a lawyer at the NT News I think he was in Adelaide and I would send him stories and he'd say, he, I'd tell him briefly what it's like, hey, uh, you know, I just sent you a story to be legal. And he'd say, oh yeah, I would say, and then he'd call back, yeah, he'd read it and he said, oh, this is another one for the only in the NT files. <laughs> yeah. It's just so over the top ridiculous. Like I remember that story, that ABC story that I wrote about this deal, the lawyer said to me like, are you serious? Is that really going on up there? And I said, mm. yeah. Like, I'm writing this every day. This stuff's going on. Nobody believes it anywhere else that it's such yeah. a cartoon world up here. But yeah. it is. And when they find out, yeah, no, goddamn way they're going to invest in it. So I have no idea whether they've um, done anything with that land or not. But I'll, I'll throw it out there for the record and say, uh, watch this space to see who gets gifted the former Parama prison land. Should we? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. What's that yeah. Be used for now? Because because it'd link up nicely with the uh, with Northcrest. So yeah, yeah, anyway. exactly, man. Like <laughs> it it seems so out there, but yeah, no, I bet you anything. But hey, we'll wait until after the election for that yeah, one. Yeah. We'll wait till August twenty seventh. Oh, and that was the other thing too. Is that like apparently we talked about them having a hard time getting projects off the ground and money out the yeah. door and stuff. Apparently the the prison's going to start before the end of the month. Construction's oh, wow. already going on it. So, oh, wow. like I said, maybe they their focus and their attention gets put on other projects for other reasons, and that they can get everything done and all the all the planning and everything all done and ready to go. And I'll state this for the record before I get uh, told off otherwise, because I know that Leon normally comes in and says, "I can't believe you two idiots are laughing about this stuff." But all I'm going to say is that if we didn't laugh about it, you could only cry because it's just, yeah. it is so bad, it's laughable. It's, it's really, really, it's, yeah, you just get dismayed. Anyway, look, uh, let's move to a lighter note. Um, we've all heard of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure. Can you, <laughs> can you talk to us about Andy Cowan's excellent adventure? <laughs> <laughs> you, you know, like, I, I thought <laughs> Andy Cowan's excellent adventure. That's a good way to put it. I, I think I had that originally as a headline and then, and then I changed it and then something, but I put something instead of where it says, usually it says exclusive. I put Cowabunga because <laughs> he went to Hawaii, you know, surfs up nude, hang 10 in Hawaii at taxpayer's expense of so $12,500 for a week's trip to Hawaii to attend a three day conference um but he was there for five nights and six days yeah yeah exactly yeah, yeah. so because that's uh, what the package allowed for yeah and it was and it was the hotel it was at too uh the hilton waikiki uh it's where elvis presley filmed blue hawaii yeah yeah, yeah. and where hawaii 50 shoots and that's still on the shop yeah. um yeah. 
So it sounds like a nice place. And I bet you that like a lot of Territorians would love to go there sometime, mm. but uh, maybe don't have 12,500 for five nights. Um, so that was part of, that was actually the second trip with this guy. And there's more to come on this. There's, there's much more to come because there's some other serious possible transgression here that's happened and we're going to, we, we should have that up soon. But the original, the original trip that he did was he flew from uh, Australia to the United States and he's, and he's there under the pretense of selling or spruiking this um, uh, data center, subsea cable thing project, right? With internet lines to Singapore and Asia and the United States. And this has been pitched for years uh, here and it's never worked. And uh, anyway, so he, he's over there trying to get this. Uh, it costs a lot of money. What I noticed on, one of the public disclosure forms of that was that part of the trip. So we went to San Francisco, Seattle, uh, back to San Francisco, Washington. And then the trip seems to end for the other guys that he's on the trip with. And then he goes to Orlando and then to LA and then back to, to Darwin. And I thought I've been to Orlando. I was to Orlando once when I was uh, a 10 year old kid. And I went to a place called Epcot center there. Anyway, uh, I thought there's no way in hell this senior public servant. I mean, he's the deputy chief executive for the department of chief minister. There's no way this guy actually went to Walt Disney world to Disney world in Florida. <laughs> so I sent him some questions and he, 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 he responded surprisingly. Um, now he's broken government protocol, government. I has saw been that. Told, I, I saw yeah, that. <laughs> not to respond. So this guy responds and what he does. And look, I'm not sure if Andy Cowan thought that I didn't know what Epcot center was that, you know, I was talking to an Australian who was on a board here who said, oh, yeah, Epcot Center, isn't that run by, you know, it's owned by the First Nations people of the United States? And I said, no, it's owned by Disney Corporation. Epcot Center, Walt Disney started it in 1966. It stands for the Experimental Prototype City of Tomorrow. It's a theme park. It's a goddamn theme park at Disney World. So this guy admits, the public servant admits that he went there. Um, and it looks like for like two nights or something, one or two nights. And, uh, uh, he says I had to do it because, you know, I was told to go there by, uh, Kakatu tourism because they had a board member there and I had to go and check out something there and help assist with this board member who was there. Now we're getting a little bit more on exactly what that is. Now, the other thing he said was it was paid for by Kakadu tourism, um, and it was $1,000 or, you know, slightly under $1,000. It was paid for by Kakadu Tourism. So the obvious question is, why was it paid eight months later? Like, why did you wait eight <laughs> months? And no answer on that. He's not going <laughs> to respond to that. But I'll tell you, if I wasn't watching that, that, yeah, the taxpayers would have footed that bill for the whole thing. And let's hope that he's keeping his word uh, that they're paying it back. I don't think so. I think this really needs to come out of his pocket. But there, there's absolutely no justifiable reason why a public servant who's, who's on official government business and how serious that is to then take this kind of sojourn to Disney World, charge taxpayers for it, and, um, and think that he got away with it until somebody questions him on it and then says, oh, yeah, it's going to be paid back by somebody else. Because guess what? It was an anti-government business that he was down there doing. So he had, mm. you know, he had no right to charge taxpayers for that to begin with. Um, and then we see after that, that then he, he comes back and he decides that this, this subsea, you know, data center idea that, that, that by all accounts hasn't attracted any investment whatsoever, but he decides I got to go to Hawaii 
for five <laughs> nights to check out this this convention. Yeah, uh, it's it's so rare that we get the documents that show where they travel because they just like mm-hmm. I said they change the rules around that. But when we get them, we can go through them like this, and this is stuff that I think the public needs to know. And I think this is exactly why we set up the independent was for this kind of stuff to hold these public servants accountable for what they're doing and how they're spending mm-hmm. money. And that that's a good example of public interest journalism right there. We all needed to know what he was doing. I believe there was a good bikini convention in Hawaii that week. <laughs> Did you look it up? Was there? <laughs> There's always one there. Yeah, he, it sounded really nice. Like they had um, uh, lay making sessions you could right. attend, yeah, and uh, yeah. hula hula training. Brilliant. Yeah, best best luau on that. <laughs> Was yeah. at this hotel? Yeah, yeah. fireworks every night. Just what the NT government needs. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and that's the thing too. In these tough economic times, uh, the Langlant report does reference corporate travel, and it says your problems in the NT are very bad, and it's cultural change. It's a whole shift, a whole cultural shift that needs to happen for you guys to meet these targets to save money. And it's not going to be as easy as cutting corporate travel and marketing uh, expenses. And I think the NT government read that as, well, let's keep the corporate travel up. He's mm-hmm. saying we don't have to cut it. He's saying mm-hmm. not only do you have to cut that, you have to change your whole mindset and everything that you're spending. But they only read it as let's keep the corporate travel going. Let's do frivolous trips to Disney World and Hawaii. And that's exactly what we saw here. And at least it's finally come up. And hopefully that's a bit of a deterrent for them for next time. But, you know, um, they'll always find a way around it. Well, you know, I mean, I listen to this stuff. And you know what I'm thinking about? I'm thinking about my wife, mate. It's 9.30 on a Thursday night and she's not home yet and she's a public servant, right? And the other day, she didn't come home till midnight. And I said, what's going on? Why? Well, they're two staff down and they've got a lot of reporting work to do, end of financial year uh, reporting. And she works her backside off, mate, right? Yeah. Yeah. And then I look at this stuff here and I think to myself, what the hell, you know? Mm -hmm. Why are we living in this sort of bifurcated world where everyone isn't rowing in the same direction, isn't taking their job seriously, isn't realising that every dollar that they spend is comes from, you know, the taxpayer. I just, just, I can't believe it. And I'm sure he's not the only one. There'd there'd have to be more than that. Oh, God, no, yeah. And and, and I was being generous on his pay packet there. I've got to find out from somebody what what, what level he's actually on, but he's making a lot of money. He's probably making closer to 300,000. But Leon, yeah, with the hardworking ones like that, I mean, they're the one, like your wife, they're the ones who make the difference there. And then, then they kind of allow for these fat cats to go and do stuff and it look like they're doing their job. Um, because of the people on the front line are actually doing their job and these guys are not. So yeah, that's gotta be frustrating. I would understand your, your wife's frustration on that and yours. Yeah. Particularly when there's no outcomes because yeah. you know, in private business, if you spend money on a trip, there's got to be an outcome to that trip. Not just, oh, yeah, I went and had a look at this thing and oh, we've decided not to do it. That's just <laughs> not how private business works. Now, there's, yeah. uh, there's obviously going to be times when government look into things for, for good reason. 
you know, and choose not to do them again for good reason. But yeah, man, it's it's frustrating. And as as Leon said, there's plenty who do work hard. Um, but look, the other thing that that comes to mind, and and we don't often, uh, you know, talk in advance of the podcast that we do or that we're doing. But what I would say is there's there's a couple of podcasts coming after this one. Uh, where we we talked to two uh, independent members of the NT, um, and and both of those guys uh, make a lot of sense about the sort of changes that are needed, and yeah. unfortunately the two big parties won't make those changes because it means they won't either get voted in or they will get voted out, uh, yeah. and a lot and of they won't come- and they won't get a chance to ride around in the white cars. And they go on this ministerial travel at yeah. taxpayer expense, and it's all about waiting their turn. Mm-hmm. And and it's gone like that with the two-party system here for the, since since self-government is that well, you know, the, I mean, of course, the CLP ran it forever, but people were taking, were waiting their turn. Oh, I'm going to get in there. Once I get in there, I'm going to mm-hmm. live it up. I got the the white cards picking me up. I can travel wherever I want. I can do whatever I want. I'm in charge. And yeah, that that self-entitlement has been deadly into. It is, and, and the other point that I want to make that came out of one of those conversations, and I'm still trying to process how this is even possible in this day and age, but it seems that the Northern Territory benefits at the expense of the misery of many. And mm. I just, I literally, I can't fathom that in this day and age that that can still be the case. So all of those people that benefit, benefit as a result of the many who don't benefit directly. Mm-hmm. Let's ask you a question about this, Cohen. I mean, I'm reading the article, just trying to get my head around it a bit more. I mean, yeah. why is this? Why isn't this stealing? I mean, I'm just asking the question. Why is it not stealing? I mean, if you went on a trip that had nothing to do with your your work and you charged mm-hmm. the government, isn't that yeah. stealing? Yeah, and we're, we're we're. I think I said there's more coming. Uh, Leon on that, and but I will say this: that he may say it's not stealing because guess who signs off on it? Michael the Cohen. chief minister. Yeah, the chief minister. Any of those senior public servants in the uh, department of chief minister has to go through the minister for ministerial travel. So he does it. There's there's more to come on the whole on the whole uh, affair, um, which should be out early next week. At this point, it may even be on the weekend again, but we'll see. Mm. I just I wanted to say one thing too that you guys. Um, mentioned i was thinking of of jerry wood the independent and he did he traveled sometimes right and and like i read one of his travel reports that he gave i actually got a teacher a retired teacher to grade the politicians last term on their on their travel reports and a lot of them failed Uh, jerry was the star pupil anyway and because he went into detail of everything he learned what taxpayers like you read his travel report you actually learned something from that mm-hmm. you got it right there worth what the taxpayers spent on it but here's the best part of that i read one of those reports and he was in like oklahoma he was in the midwest iowa or something in the united states and he talks about how he met these people he was out at some something looking at some project or something he meets these people they get talking and stuff. They invite him back to their place for dinner, goes back to their place for dinner, ends up spending the night or two nights with them. 
<laughs> saving taxpayers money. He's yeah. not paying for dinner. They want him there. They're having good conversation. He's there with this whole extended family, and they mm-hmm. invite him to stay on. He just said, he was crashing on people's self-expressings. <laughs> and MLA, who is traveling now, you get a public servant to do that. I would yeah. be, I'd be very impressed. But yeah, good on Jerry for doing that for that long. And he really, he paid attention to every dollar when he was spending mm-hmm. it. That was good. Yep, he told us about one of those reports and he handed it out to everybody who wanted a copy and even those who didn't want a copy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. What was, part- what was particularly telling about those two guys, uh, Jerry Wood and Scott McConnell, uh, Scott McConnell came out, he, he, we interviewed him after Jerry and he said to us, he said, Jerry Wood is the hardest working politician in mm. the NT Parliament. Mm, you know, yeah, yeah. Anyway, we learned a lot. We learned a lot. Uh, we learned a lot from you, Chris. And uh, you know, I really look forward to these podcasts on Thursday night because it's such an educational experience, and it makes me feel good that someone is out there, you know, looking under these rocks, and uh, you know, just shining a light in all this stuff. I just hope that you know, some good comes out of this and some really important changes come out of it. Otherwise, we're just going to yeah. be stuck playing tennis with these two political parties. Mm. Yeah, and I and I have a lot of faith that it will. That's why I'm still doing this, right? That's why we've started doing this paper where our focus is on that and holding people accountable. And so, yeah, and I appreciate your guys' support every week. I love doing this, the podcast. And, and yeah, and that's just the thing. You just got to support this stuff, right? Like we're doing it, we're presenting it. It's free for people to go read and it's going to keep you informed and it's going to hold the government accountable. It's going to hold the public service accountable. And it, yeah, if people just read it, I think the pressure can be applied. And I know for a fact they are reading. Our numbers are going up every week. And every time we do a big story like that with the, with the clearly blatant misuse of taxpayer money on our public servants travel, our reader numbers go up. People share it. People start talking about it. So we're going to keep, you know, keeping our heads down, keep digging into this stuff. I've got so many FOIs file guys. We didn't even get into one that I was going to talk about. <laughs> Hey, we got next week and we'll bring it up again. That was Chris Walsh from the NT Independent Online Newspaper. Weekends with Walshie back again next weekend here on the Territory Story Podcast. We'll catch you then. You've been listening to the Territory Story Podcast with Leon Logan Nathan and Peter Gowers. For more episodes, search Territory Story Podcast on all leading podcasting platforms The Territory Story Podcast, thanks to Opie Dennis Digital Marketing, your local digital marketing agency.